Welcome to Chapter by Chapter. I am your host, Brian Thomas Crop, and I believe stories have a tremendous power for good, and so I write them, and I enjoy sharing them with you. The way this show goes is that in just a little bit, you'll hear uh, from a book that I have written uh, called Shell Game, in this case, and then we'll talk about how that chapter came to be and look at uh, either some of the writing processes or uh, Easter eggs from my life that I threw in there or just other things that go into making a, a book or a story. So if you are someone who is either likes how things get put together or you are writing stories for yourself and you want to know kind of what is what is another author's uh, process, then this is uh, a great podcast for you to listen to. Uh, we are neck deep in uh, this novel Shell Game. It is part two of a series that I am writing. And this one is a uh, crime noir fantasy, I don't know, Fantasia. I don't know what another uh, name for that. Uh, but we are um, about to be, no, we are. This, this, this time we are in act three. And... Um, there's a whole lot that's going to get wrapped up. So uh, in the show notes, you can find the episode where we link back to the uh, first episode of this book. Uh, but you can go to my blog at briantomascrop.com and you can read the whole story for free so you can catch up that way too. Now, the way that uh, I prepare for this uh, podcast is that I listen to the recording of the audiobook and then I make some notes and as I was listening to both chapters 39 and 40 I realized it's really just one long chapter I broke them the way that I did because um at a certain length the chapters get too long and you want to realize that you've you've wrapped up something so i ended chapter 39 but chapter 40 is a continuation of it and chapter 40 is a lot of exposition so there's not a whole lot of plot movement on it but there's a lot of oh that's why that happened the way it is so it did seem to me as i was listening to them that chapters 39 and 40 really go together as a unit and for me to break them apart into two separate podcast episodes was not going to make all that much sense so um you are in for a double header uh podcast where we will listen to both chapters 39 and 40 and then we will get to uh the behind the scenes stuff on the other side of that so uh buckle up i hope you uh have you know poured yourself a cup of coffee or tea or are uh, whatever you're doing i hope you enjoy uh chapters 39 and 40 of shell game and is there anything else before we get into the chapters no, I think I think if you've made it this far, you know what's going on. Uh, if you need a, a refresher on the plot up to this point, again, I would go back to the first episode in this book. Um, and again, that that episode number will be in the show notes. So uh, without further ado, we will get to chapters 39 and 40 right after we hear from this week's sponsors. This episode is also sponsored by Showdown in the Yukon, the first book in the Pearl Saga. It is a story of Monterey Jack Danvers, who is a reformed pickpocket who is hired by his old partner in crime to help rescue a uh, stolen gold claim up in the Yukon Territory for a widow. He also finds the widow's daughter quite attractive and that helps him go on this adventure that takes him on uh, stormy seas, through caves, through forest fires and being hunted down um, in forests and all kinds of uh, great adventure. And the big question is, Will they be able to uh, rescue this gold mine, uh, this gold claim back from the evil man who uh, took it from this poor widow woman? And then what kind of man 
does Monterey Jack Danvers turn into by the end of uh, the story. It is also the prelude to uh, Shell Game Part 2 of the Pearl Saga, and you can find Showdown in the Yukon at Amazon.com. You can also find the links uh, to that over at BrianThomasCrop.com. Chapter 39. Evan stepped further into the room, his arm still around Claire's shoulder. Well, come in. Don't mind me, he said, his eyes bouncing off his three unexpected guests. Take a load off. Mi casa es tu casa. I can tell that this serves as an adequate dwelling, Mr. Gold, Patch purred. But home is not the word I would choose. Again, he motioned for Evan to take a seat. Evan released his hold on Claire and walked toward a chair. Margot stood in his way and made a clumsy attempt to frisk Evan for a weapon. That decision brought Evan's elbow up under her chin, clacking her teeth together and causing her to stumble back two steps. She dropped her gun in the process. Margot felt her jaw to make sure everything still worked before locking her eyes on Evan. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. Evan noted that Margot looked like a rabid animal, but he remained relaxed. What is wrong with you? I'm stronger and faster than you. Give it up. Margot charged at Evan, but he sidestepped her attack and hooked his foot around her ankle, dropping her to the floor. He addressed Eye Patch while not taking his eyes off Margot. Are you going to rein in your attack dog? Eye Patch viewed Margot's frame as she gathered herself back up. Drop it, Margot. Your time will come. Word on the street is Mr. Gold never carries a weapon anyway. He turned to Evan. Isn't that right, Mr. Gold? I carry when it seems appropriate, he said, and sat down. Evan eyed Claire, who acted shocked at the whole interchange. Harold Huber sat across from Evan and placed his gun on the side table between himself and Eye Patch. I assume it's you I have to thank for the bit of entertainment you provided earlier, Evan said with wariness. He was still unsure what the play was now. He'd expected the police, not the criminals, to be hunting him down. The space between Eye Patch's eyebrows knitted together. Entertainment? Yes, I agree. Entertainment makes it sound fun, which it wasn't. He looked around the room again. You didn't put Miss Porter here up to calling me, faking distress so I might get picked up by the police at her apartment for something that certainly looked scandalous? You had me thinking she might be in real danger. What convinced you she wasn't? The man dressed in black asked. For one, Miss Porter's cat-like skill of landing on her feet. Another was the convenient timing of the police dragnet. Eyepatch hummed to himself. Yes, well, I'm sure you can understand why a person might want to use some methods of distraction. The faintest smile appeared on his face. I'm not sure what that means, Evan said. The entertainment, as you call it, served its purpose quite nicely. Quite nicely indeed. Evan looked around the room a third time, still not getting a good read of anything, but decided to force himself into looking relaxed. He sat back in his chair and said, It's good you found me when you did. Why is that, exactly? I'd lost track of the lot of you, and I wanted to meet with you as soon as I'd located the pearl, Evan said and watched for their reactions. There was a slight increase in the air's tension. Evan pressed further. How I came across it is an interesting story. A dying train conductor delivered it. All eyes went to Eyepatch, whose face did not seem to register a reaction to this news. But you already know about him. You know we should stop with all the murders? Athens is a quiet town. Peaceful. It's in all the real estate brochures. I mean, three murders in one week? Let's pace ourselves, huh? I didn't know you had located it, Claire said and tried her best to smile while her eyes sought a means of escape. Eyepatch reached into his coat and produced a handmade envelope. What's that? Evan asked him. The man in black opened the envelope and pulled out a stack of $100 bills. Then he counted them out one at a time and laid them in a tidy row on the coffee table between Evan and himself. That's $1,000. He gathered up all the bills and tucked them back into the envelope and handed it to Evan. And every one of them is yours. Evan looked inside the envelope before tossing it back on the table. I was told it would be a lot more than this. That's what I can get my hands on at the moment. One thousand dollars, and that's true currency, no counterfeits. Take it or leave it. 
The man in black picked up the envelope and waved it in front of Evan for him to take. From my checking around, this should settle all of your debts quite easily. There's only so much ready money one can carry easily. There's no need to get greedy. Evan laughed one sarcastic explosion. <laughs> That's cute. That's real cute. The only problem is I have the pearl and you don't. True enough, Mr. Gold. But please don't miss the very significant point that I have you. Yes. But you want to get out of this town like a ghost, right? Evan smirked. You don't want to leave with guns blazing. If you want the pearl, you're going to need to negotiate with me because I can keep the police off your back. The man in black smiled. I can take care of the police. You certainly have done a bang-up job so far. Evan looked down at the envelope on the table and then back up to the stranger. I don't know about you, but having this money out in the open makes me nervous. Why don't you put it in your pocket? The man in black asked. After all, the money is yours. I'm not so sure, Evan said. He picked up the envelope and handed it to Claire. Here, you keep track of it. Claire took the envelope like a timid child. M me take it? Yes. You're the closest thing we have to a neutral party in this whole mess, Evan said. Claire tucked the envelope in the pocket of her jacket, and Evan folded his hands across his middle. Now, Evan leaned back in his chair, the way I see it, you can have the pearl back and have the police forget you ever existed for the low price of one patsy. One what? Patsy. Some helpless fool to hang all the murders on. Someone to take the rap for all of your misdeeds. Eyepatch purred briefly before saying, I don't think I like this patsy idea. It sounds complicated. I think you're clever enough to handle the police without all that. I think you overestimate me, Evan grinned. I don't know, Eyepatch replied. You've been able to get yourself out of several tight situations so far. The police are just biding their time. This goes on long enough, someone's going to make a mistake, and then they strike. Three murders in one week? Things are getting sloppy and hard to contain. They're going to get very aggressive very soon. We control it and offer up someone to them. They'll be off our backs and you can be on your merry way. Plus, in case you hadn't factored this into your plans, the person the police are eager to pin all this on is yours truly. So my word to them ain't worth a plug nickel. Which means for you, if I get sent to Leavenworth, you can kiss your precious pearl goodbye. Ipech dismissed this argument with a wave of his gloved hand. I have every confidence in your verbal skills, Mr. Gold. You, too, tend to land on your feet. Fine. In that case, listen to me. Your time of fun and games is at an end. They're closing in. Give them someone reasonable and they'll vanish. Won't they just see this patsy, as you call him, as another clue instead of a conclusion? You're focusing on the wrong thing, Evan leaned forward. The police are not dumb. They're very good at their jobs. They know a phony from the real deal. That stunt you pulled at Claire's apartment today is going to drive them into a frenzy. You need a patsy. It can't be me for reasons I've already told you. The inky stranger rubbed his chin and exhaled. Do you have a suggestion for this patsy? Evan looked around the room and noticed that everyone's courage had weakened. It meant he had a chance to get out of this in one piece. After several moments of quiet thought, Evan pointed at Margot. She would work nicely. Margot stepped forward and said, Look at me in the eye when you say that. Eyepatch held up a hand to stay Margot and laughed. Ah, I'm afraid that's unacceptable, Mr. Gold. She's our best bet. Fine. But what keeps her from telling the police everything she knows, and then we're in the same situation? I know some folks in the big house could silence her before she had a chance to squawk, Evan said, as if it was a minor issue, but it shouldn't have to come to that. At this, Eyepatch let out a grunt. There is coldness lurking in you, Mr. Gold. He shifted his weight. How would this work, exactly? The whites of Margot's eyes grew more visible, and the color started to drain from her face as she turned to her boss. I don't have time to spell out the play-by-play, -play, Evan said. Too many variables. Still, Eyepatch said, she is under my command for the moment. Humor me. Evan sighed. 
When push comes to shove, the DA would rather have an imperfect case tossed out than have a conviction reversed in the future. The way we play this is to offer up one patsy instead of five. What does that mean? It means we can shore up one story and make sure it's as plausible as it can be. We do that for all of us, something's going to crack, and then a real investigation starts up. I know everyone here has things they want to keep from the police investigators. If you think I can thread this needle, then take my advice. I can help the DA reach the conclusion he wants, and you get to go free. But I don't see how all the murders can rest on Margot's shoulders. Don't worry about that. The DA already has a theory that one of Jimmy Carollo's men killed Charles. What the DA wants is the big one, the one who killed Gabe Silver. He's the local guy, the guy with the wife and the kids we're all going to see at the grocery store. We pin that one on your girl here, and the police won't worry so much about the rest of it. The man with the silver eye patch started to hum to himself again. He took several long moments to consider Evan's argument. I see what you mean, Mr. Gold. I'm not in favor of it, but I'm starting to see the possibilities your plan would afford us. Margot stood next to Evan. He could feel the rage building in her. Stand up like a man and let's see who survives. Evan laughed. <laughs> Seriously, you need to calm down. For once, start thinking with your head instead of your gun. You kill me, and where's your precious pearl, huh? Where's your payday? Let's all calm down for a moment, iPad said. We're only discussing theories at this point. An intellectual game of sorts. He turned his attention back to Evan. I think it's best if we drop the Patsy idea and move on to something else. Evan raised his eyebrows. Okay. I'm sorry, I thought I was negotiating with the man in charge. Is that true, or should I start negotiating with Margot here? No, no, no. Eyepatch waved his hands in front of him. I'm the one you need to address. It's just going to take me a moment to get used to the idea. Fine. You and Margot have a special relationship. I get it. Evan swung around to point at Harold. We could offer him up. At this, Harold straightened up and his hand went for his pistol on the table. The black-gloved hand of his boss kept Harold from pointing the gun at Evan. Interesting, Ipatch said. How would that work? I'll tell you, it's not as pretty as Margot here, but it has its merits. Why not offer you up? Harold whined. Or her? He hooked a thumb at Claire. Because I hold the pearl, Gold said slowly. No me, no pearl. Is that a hard concept for you to grasp? So one of you needs to play the patsy. That's part of the price of this deal. As for Claire, he paused a moment, I'm willing to discuss it. That is, if you think it'll work. Now it was Claire's turn for wide eyes and drained skin. I think this is getting a bit out of hand, Ipatch said. Let's all try to remain civil about this. You can't kill me because I and only I know where the pearl is. So killing me is worthless. Do you see? Evan asked the room. We can take that right off the table. I'm sure there are more means of persuasion than just killing, Ipatch said. Yes, Evan agreed. But without the possibility of death, they probably don't have teeth. Do you see my point? Yes, I'm afraid I do, Ipatch mumbled. I think you might say I hold all the cards in this negotiation. If we don't do this my way, I walk. Ipatch cleared his throat and stood up. This is all very interesting, Mr. Gold. If you don't mind... I would like to talk about this privately with Mr. Huber and Miss Porter. Margot, keep an eye on our guest. Evan watched as the three of them huddled by the street side window. Evan turned to Margot, who looked trapped in her thoughts. You realize, don't you, sweetheart, that they're working out how to throw you over? Margot looked at Evan with disbelief, and then the thoughts connected, and she grabbed up her gun off the table. She leveled it at Eyepatch's back. Evan sprung to his feet, broke the weapon from her hand, and twisted her arm behind her back. She yelped in pain, which caught the attention of the other three. Margot writhed under Evan's hold and voiced all sorts of threats against him. Harold darted over to help pin her down. They got her settled on the sofa near the window, and Evan placed a solid punch to her jaw to send her to dreamland. Margot's fight left her, and she breathed easy. Harold seized the opportunity to lay a punch on Evan, but it was blocked. Evan came back around with a fist to Harold's middle, followed by a second to his jaw. Harold folded like a bedsheet and backed away from Evan. Evan immediately began to search Margot's clothes for other hidden weapons. 
When her arsenal was on the table, he looked at the room of thieves, pointed at Margot, and said, Well, can we agree she's our patsy? Eyepatch's shoulders drooped. She's been such a good soldier for me. It would be a shame for her to meet her end in such an inglorious fashion. Oh, don't let your heart get the better of you. That is, assuming you have a heart, Evan said. No, no, you're right, Eyepatch said. She's our patsy. He looked up to Evan and asked him, What's next? Chapter 40 It's going to be very important we get our story straight, so when the police come calling, we're not found out in moments. Evan brushed his hands together and walked back over to his chair. That was a good job you did laying out all those clues back at Claire's apartment. Problem is, the trail leads to me, and here we all are at the most likely place for the cops to come to first. We're going to have to come up with our story and fast. Huber, who up to then had been transfixed by Margot's limp body and the conversation to throw her overboard, suddenly wheeled on Evan. Why do we need to make up lies about her? Haven't you done enough damage? I don't see why we need to ruin this poor girl's reputation further. Evan eyed Huber coolly from his chair. Listen, Harold, you're either in with this all the way or you're out all the way. This deal doesn't work if we're not all in this together. It's a bad deal. Harold spat, treating good people like a chip tossed on a casino table. I agree with you. This is a nasty business. But let's face it, none of you are model citizens. You want out, Harold? That's fine. As soon as the police come knocking, we can just as easily send you over with dear Margot here and be on about our lives. You want that? Harold stood still, his eyes darting around the room, his hands nervously rubbing each other, beads of sweat growing on his forehead. After a second of consideration, Harold Huber shook his head slightly. Fantastic, Evan said and checked his watch. Let's see, it's 10 right now. I won't be able to get access to the Pearl till the morning, he thought a moment. Looks like we'll just need to sit tight and wait for the time to pass. I can't say it will be much fun, but I don't think it would be a good idea for any of us to be out of each other's sight. At least, not with the amount of trust we've built among each other. Evan gave a cat-like grin. I quite agree, said Eyepatch. No one in or out of this apartment until the transaction has been finalized. All eyes looked to the inky stranger. Now that we've come to some level of understanding between the two of us, he said, there is another deal I would like you to consider. I'll consider it. I reserve the right not to like it, though, Evan said. Eyepatch narrowed his only visible eye on Evan. As you say, my crew and I have been clumsy in how we have handled our business here. I suppose you could say our footprint is a little more obvious than I'd prefer. I want your guarantee of two hours minimum to get out of town cleanly once the police have their man, or woman in this case. I don't think you'll need the guarantee. I'm telling you, the police will have enough on their hands with Margot to worry much about you, Evan sighed. No, I think you'll be quite forgotten by the time the police get wise should that ever happen. Of course, that means you can't trip over your own feet on your way out of town. The man in black grunted a laugh, but Evan noted a look of concern all the same. Evan clapped his hands together and said, Since time is of the essence, let's figure out why Margot killed Charles and the train conductor. The stranger's forehead grew deep vertical lines as he smiled and shook his head. I don't know that that is a road you want to travel down, Mr. Gold. I think if we don't travel down that road, the story we sell the police about Margot is going to be pretty thin. If we want this to sound convincing, I'm going to have to know what happened. I can't spin gold without a little straw. You don't think that the guns, Eyepatch pointed at the many weapons lying on the table, would be convincing enough? Basic truth about people, Evan said. Everyone likes a good story, even cops. It doesn't have to make complete sense, it just has to have enough believability that you're willing to suspend a few realities to accept it as truth. I buy a lot of junk, and believe me, without a story, this whole thing is junk. Evan relaxed in his chair and exhaled as he said, Let's start with Jason Charles. Why did she kill him? I patched side and rubbed his chin. You must know, that's not how I hoped that it would happen. Mr. Charles was a thief, a lousy thief, and a greedy thief. He was also a killer and a friend of our Miss Porter over there. He was quite valuable in his way. 
But between you and me, I would have bet good money that she would have done away with Mr. Charles. Don't let her beauty deceive you, Mr. Gold. Behind Miss Porter's facade is the heart of a killer. Evan glanced over to Claire, who stood motionless except for her hands mindlessly soothing her upper arms. The man in black purred to himself. We'd recently acquired Mr. Charles, and he informed us of Miss Porter's abilities. Mr. Charles, a wild card at best, said we'd be wise to employ her talent of separating fools and their valuables. I'm a bit of a gambler and was willing to take the risk on the pair of them. Her beauty, his brawn. You need several brushes to complete a painting, as the saying goes. So I sent Miss Porter to see a Mr. Preston Plum in Colorado. I'd recently discovered that he had the pearl, and he didn't know its significance. She successfully acquired the pearl from him, but before I could claim it back, I found out she and Charles had developed a scheme to abscond with what is rightfully mine. Before I could act, however, Jason Charles had already slipped town and Miss Porter was playing coy. You didn't think Charles had skipped town with the pearl? Evan asked. I didn't think that, because I knew Miss Porter would not let a treasure like the Pearl escape from her sight for too long, and I thought Mr. Charles would buy almost any story that Pretty Face told him. What I didn't know was that she had already packaged it up and worked out a transportation deal with the now-deceased train conductor. So, trying to salvage this debacle, I sent Margot on ahead to locate Mr. Charles and convince him that judgment was coming if he didn't repent of his scheme and tell us what was going on. Evan said, So, Margot was what? She was to find out if Charles had the pearl? Or at least where the pearl was. Ipat shifted his weight and smiled to himself. There is a certain card game I have picked up along the way. Three-card Monty. Are you familiar? Evan nodded. A simple confidence game based on deception. But aren't they all? I enjoy this one because it's so simple. It's not without its risks and can be beaten, however. Evan noted the pain of a memory flash across the stranger's face. This situation had begun to feel like that card game. So while I was turning over Miss Porter to see which card she was, Margot was to do the same with Mr. Charles. Never let it be said that I play fair. Margot arrived here and watched Mr. Charles for a day or two. She noticed that Miss Porter and he had reunited and picked her moment to confront him. Presumably, it happened to be that the moment she picked was only minutes after Mr. Charles had killed your Mr. Silver. I would have preferred a better outcome to their negotiation, but I'm afraid Margot felt her ability to broker a satisfactory agreement was at an end. Evan nodded. Okay, that's good. I can work with that. How about the conductor? At this, Eyepatch laughed like a proud parent. Ah, I'm afraid that was all Miss Porter's doing. You see, Mr. Huber over there had been another representative of mine in Colorado working on Mr. Plum. He's the one who drew my interest to Mr. Charles in the first place. In a sense, he was my eyes and ears while I was still in California. I received a telegram from Mr. Huber informing me of the plan to sabotage our whole operation. I hopped on the very next train. By the time I arrived, Charles was gone, and the rest I've already told you. It was not until after Miss Porter slipped my grasp that I unearthed the plot with the conductor. She's a very clever girl. I assumed she followed the conductor to whatever destination he traveled, so I sent Margot here to deal with Charles, and I took a train to Nebraska to find Miss Porter. Little did I know she also came here, and by the time I arrived in Nebraska, the conductor was already en route here. Her entire plot finally made sense, but I was, alas, a day or two behind. 
timing, as they say, is everything. It's unfortunate how the poor man met his end, as I don't think he had the slightest awareness of the importance of the cargo he carried. As far as I can guess, he was smitten with Miss Porter's face and her satin words, and thought there was a chance they might build a deeper relationship together. We met up with the two of them at the depot the other evening and thought we had reached a good enough agreement by the stroke of midnight. Margot, Mr. Huber, and I left, and I set to acquire the proper funds. However, Miss Porter and he had different plans and again slipped through our fingers. So the fire at the depot, Evan asked, was that you? That was Margot, I patched grunted. Every once in a while, she needs to let off some steam. It's been a tough week for her, as you can imagine. Evan concealed his reaction to this news and asked, So, how did the conductor get shot? Yes, well, began the man in black, We spent the better part of the day hunting them down and thought we had them cornered in Miss Porter's apartment. However, when we knocked on the door, we heard shuffling feet and the raising and lowering of a window. I sent Margot down to see what she could make of it, while Mr. Huber and I went in to see Miss Porter, who was by then entirely alone. When Margot made it to the alley behind the apartment building, she saw the conductor hopping off the fire escape. Let's just say the conversation did not go well, and Margot shot him. She was supposed to immobilize him, but the man overpowered Margot and escaped even though she wounded him quite extraordinary. She didn't want to arouse suspicion, and though this fog is insufferable, the fight happened in the bright light of day, so she didn't give full chase and increase the number of witnesses. While all of that was happening, Mr. Huber and I were trying to reason with Miss Porter, helping her to see reason. She let us know that yes, the conductor possessed the pearl, and yes, he was on his way to deliver it to you. Eyepatch pointed his glove finger at Evan. By that point, Margot had rejoined our party, and we persuaded Miss Porter to invent a way to draw you away from the office so we could send Margot there to look for the pearl. When she got there, the police were crawling all over the office, and she doubled back here. Just then, a moaning came from the direction of the window. Margot was coming too. They watched as she sat up, felt her jaw, and focused her mind on the situation at hand. She quickly put the facts together that she had been sold out and started to move toward Evan. You're dead, Gold. Let me get my claws into you, she mumbled. It did not take much strength for Harold to keep her contained. Though her body was sluggish, Evan could still see the full fire of rage in her eyes. The man in black stood and went to her. I promise you, Margot. I've not seen more valor and pluck in any soldier than what you demonstrate regularly. I'm sorry it's come to this, but we all must meet our end at one point or another. What I must do, above all else, is finish my assignment and mourn all who cannot finish the mission with me. Ipatch returned to his chair, and it was clear that his words had taken all the fight out of Margot. She dangled like an overcooked noodle in Harold's arms. They would have looked like a romantic couple in a different setting, but the tableau was pathetic to Evan and hoped for a swift end to the evening. As I mentioned in the intro to this episode, I was re-listening to uh, both of these chapters and realized that chapter 40 is largely exposition. It's largely eyepatch essentially telling the story of how we got to this point and explaining the magic trick almost. Um, and so it didn't seem like it was much of a standalone episode for this podcast. And so we've looped it in because uh, it is just a continuation of chapter 39. And um, so I want to look at both of these chapters together and uh, kind of see what's going on there. Uh, the most exciting Part of it, well, I don't know if it's the most exciting and exciting part of this um, is that we're now squarely in Act Three. Um, we've got all of the liars in the room, so to speak, and this is this story's best stab at that moment 
at the end of an Agatha Christie story where uh, the master detective has all of the suspects in the room and goes through like, you know, it could have been this person, but no, it could have been this person, but no, and, you know, doing that whole thing. Uh, this isn't exactly the way that goes, but it is that moment where you, the audience, has been taken through all of these different events, and now we finally get to put the light of truth on what's going on and um, arrive possibly at some uh, justice and some closure on some stuff. Um, I was thinking about this over the past uh, couple of days and then in re-listening to these uh, chapters, it became even more um, obvious, I guess, um, at how brilliant the title for the book shell game is and i i can say that in utter humility because i did not come up with the title of the book a friend of mine jason did and this this set of chapters really highlights that there's not one shell game going on there are multiple shell games happening in the story for one uh, and I've mentioned this over the past several weeks of one of the joys that I had in writing this story was the amount of activity that the bad guys are doing off stage. So where we don't see them because the camera of this story is focused on Evan the whole time, there are these actions that are happening off stage, so to speak, uh, by... Uh, Claire and Eyepatch and Margot and Harold that um, we see the effects of, but we don't see them happen in real time. <clears throat> and so that's a lot of what goes on in um, a shell game or three card Monty, <clears throat> excuse me, as um, we discover that Eyepatch really likes that game, which is a variant of um, and if you're unfamiliar, you can, you can look it up. The three card Monty is a street con game uh, that you would it's I think it's illegal, but you get a you get three cards. Three card Monty is you get three cards. Two of them are of one type. So like a jack or a 10 or it doesn't matter. But you've got two of the same type and then one is of another type. So a queen or a nine or an ace or something. And then you throw them around and the way you throw them uh, throws off the viewer where they think they know where the odd card is. And then the, the con artist who's running the game knows uh, where uh, it really is and knows that they're, they're throwing the person off. And usually this goes, there's someone else in the crowd who's in on the joke or in on the con game and will build up the confidence of the mark, the fool, who's going to buy into this by being right a lot. And like, oh, well, it can't be that hard to do this. I can, you know, win this game. And the shell game is very similar um, in that you might have, say, three... Uh, say walnut shells is normally how I've seen this and a pea and um, you, you're shown which shell has the pea under it and then you move all the shells around and then you try to guess which shell has the pea under it and you're always wrong um, that's that's how the con game goes and there's a lot of that going on that there is stuff moving around in secret and people are trying to take guesses as to what's going on and uh, they're maybe wrong maybe they're right about some things but not the whole thing um so there's all of that like grand activity happening throughout the story but then there is this pearl and on one end you and i because we've been uh, part of this story this whole time we know that the pearl is around Catherine's neck but we've also been moving the pearl around a little bit to keep it away from the bad guys and they keep trying to guess at where it is and they're wrong so the the pearl is um also a shell game in this and then we're about to see, not in these two chapters, obviously, but over the course of Act 3, this envelope that uh, has $1,000, it has 10 $100 bills in it, will also become a bit of a shell game. Um, Eye patch counted out the money, put it back in the envelope, hands it to uh, Evan, and Evan decides to hide it, and he has hidden it with Claire. And so we now have a new thing that we, we think we know what's going on and we might be right, maybe, 
<laughs> we might be right, but it's now hidden. And what's going to happen uh, with that thing? So uh, tune in to future episodes to find out what happens with that envelope. Or obviously, you can go over to brianthomascrop.com, over to the blog, and you can read ahead and find out what happens with that. Um, I also really enjoyed uh, like the the line that uh, we, we're going to see these people in the grocery stores. Uh, we've, we've got to solve Gabe Silver's murder because we, we're going to have to live with the aftermath. All you bad guys, you're going to get what you need out of this and you're going to bolt town. And we've got to deal with um, watching Mrs. Silver and the kids uh, at the grocery store. And the if you read the Maltese Falcon, which a lot of this is uh, kind of stemmed from, it takes place in San Francisco. And even at the time that Maltese Falcon was written, San Francisco is a big town and you can hide. One of the things that I have realized about living in a larger town, I live in Fort Worth, Texas, which is not the biggest of towns, but um, it's very different than my experience growing up in a smaller town, which Athens is based on. Um, I was listening. Uh, I guess I wasn't listening. My daughter was telling me I was listening, but it wasn't like I was listening to a podcast. Anyway, uh, my uh, daughter was telling me an experience of some friends of ours who have moved to um, just a really remote place in Kansas. It's in northwest Kansas, and they are now familiar enough with the town and the people in the town that they can stare out their front window and watch a car go by and know who it is because they recognize the car. And that was my experience growing up as well. Kansas at the time had a help in that the way that they had structured their license plates was you had the letter of your last name and then three numbers. So if you found a car that was familiar you could look at the license plate and see well does the last name that i'm thinking goes with that car does that go with the license plate um that's changed now i think everybody that i know of uh, around the country are on like a three letter three number kind of long uh, license plate thing but you really could uh, be driving around Emporia and go like, oh, that's so-and-so's car. And oh, that, you know, oh, so-and-so must be at the store because they're, I see their car in the parking lot. And my experience of running into Dylan's or Price Chopper or wherever and running into people was very common in Emporia and it's very rare in Fort Worth. And so uh, I wanted to add that layer to all of this that isn't a part of Maltese Falcon. They're not dealing with a small town crime where you're going to have to deal with the aftermath. Like this will affect these, these murders are going to grossly affect the psychology of the whole town uh, for a very long time. And so we're going to have to deal with that. And so there's a part of Evan that is doing it for him, of trying to solve uh, the murder. There's part of that where he's just trying to find justice for uh, his uh, deceased partner. But there really is this town that he cares about and is trying to uh, help them move on and get some closure as well that the bad guys really don't care one one lick about. Um, but then there's this there's this moment that I didn't really understand in Maltese Falcon. I did um, do a variant of it with uh, this story of um, uh, you know uh, they're all going to confer off to the side and uh, talk about whether or not they should uh, make uh, Margot the Patsy or not, and then Evan kind of pokes her with the comments like you know they're going to throw you over right. And um, I think, you know, in, in re-listening to it, like, okay, I think maybe the strategy here, and don't, don't you love it that the author is just now figuring out what strategy was, <laughs> um, you know, just to keep pressure on, um, uh, to keep pressure on the bad guys and make sure that they um, are never able to settle into a good rhythm, that there's always something uh, going on uh, to bother them. And um, if I can take the loose cannon and make them the grenade that I, I keep them off balance with, that's what I'm going to do. And so in an effort to kind of push things in the direction he wants them to go, I think that's, you know, Evan says, hey, 
you know, I think they're, they're doing you wrong and you should take care of that. And so, um, uh, we kind of move along from this debate of who should be the best Patsy to like, no, we're going to use the person that I want to be the Patsy and it's, it's going to be this person. So, um, the other thing, um, I guess I should have mentioned this back with the uh, three card Monty, but if you've been uh, a long time listener of this podcast or you have read Showdown in the Yukon, um, there is sort of a nod to that story when uh, Eyepatch is talking about how he loves three card Monty and there's this moment where like well it can be beaten he says and there's this look that kind of goes over his face which is that reminder that there was a time when he lost and uh that was back with uh monterey jack danvers and when this whole story kicked off of um the pearl helps monterey uh win at three card monte and that kind of launches this uh pursuit of the pearl um in earnest um, the only other thing I really wanted to highlight, and this is not much of an Easter egg, but it kind of is, is I have a um, I have a love for listening to the dialogue in the first four seasons of The West Wing, uh, written by Aaron Sorkin. Um, I have all kinds of debates with the screen about the politics of the show, um, but. Uh, I really like how the dialogue is written. Um, I even have debates in my head with Aaron Sorkin about how schmaltzy his uh, emotions are when he writes, but the rhythms that he writes with and the way he's able to turn a phrase are really just delightful, um, particularly in that show. And one of the catchphrases of that show, it's weird to think that that political drama has a catchphrase, but um, whenever the president is ready to move on to something he'll say what's next or um often it was um uh, a typical episode they would have had a little bit of comedy a little bit of tragedy a little bit of political intrigue and um like there's there's i think there's this episode where there's this grand dinner and everyone is dressed to their teeth like there's just it's just the, everybody looks great but there's also happening at the same time there is this boat the ship off the uh, coast who's having a terrible time because they uh, left harbor to avoid a hurricane and then ended up accidentally driving right into it because the hurricane changed path and we don't know if they're going to make it or not and so all of the west wing staff and the president are brought into the oval office to kind of talk through what to do and so they're all they all look fantastic like in dresses and tuxes and the whole thing but they're dealing with this national um tragedy and you kind of get done with the whole thing and then okay well what's next because there's going to be a new problem uh, to deal with and i remember uh that there were so many parallels to that kind of moment in my uh life in ministry that uh you know you'd be in the middle of something really fun and then there's something really hard happening at the same time and there's not a whole lot of time because life just keeps moving there's not a whole lot of time to process and um evaluate what has happened you're just on to the next thing and so this concept of well okay that's done what's next and let's press into the next thing and that's sort of where Evan is at the end of, of this story. Like, okay, great. We've got our, we've got our Patsy. We've got our plan. We've got all those things together. Okay. Now what's next? And, um, so that is sort of, it's a nod to that. It's also a nod to one of my favorite moments in playwriting, which is at the end of act one of Glenn Gary, Glenn, uh, Glenn Ross which I think it's highlighted really interestingly at uh, in the movie version. Uh, there is, a, if you know the play and you watch the movie, you know where the act break is. Um, but there is this inter-office intrigue amongst these uh, really shady real estate salesmen. And one of them is trying to convince um, this, this dude um, to buy into this property that is probably a bad investment. It's going to make the salesman some money, but this guy's going to get, you know, messed over uh, for doing this. And he's been kind of swirling around this really weird um, monologue in uh, at a bar 
arguably both guys have had a little too much to drink. And so they're not putting all the logic together. And he's just kind of swirling around this thing. And then he pulls out a brochure and he says, what is this? And kind of explains, you know, it's not just a property, it's an opportunity and all this stuff. And then um, you can tell that the, the dude is very interested in the opportunity, even though it's probably a bad opportunity. And then the end of the, the act is the salesman tells the dude, listen to what I'm going to tell you now. And the lights go out. You're like, oh, like the, the hook was set and now let me pull you in. And it's, it's just a great way of, um, you know what happened, even though you don't get to see what happened. So that's also kind of a hook into, oh no, what's gonna happen next? So we end of the chapter with what's next um, for those uh, kind of um, possibly manipulative reasons. But anyway, uh, that is a behind the scenes look at chapters 39 and 40 of Shell Game. Thank you for indulging me on this uh, double header episode. Uh, we will get to chapter 41 next week and uh between now and then um please let the people know about uh the show we would uh, love uh, to uh, pass the word if you have been enjoying uh this uh podcast you can also go to um, amazon and leave ratings and reviews for the books there you can it's Right now, as I'm recording this, it is roughly Christmas season in 2022. And uh, if you want to pick up a copy or two of any of my books and send them out as Christmas presents, that would always be appreciated. You can do that either through the website at brianthomascrop.com or you can search for brianthomascrop.com over at Amazon and you can find the books there as well. Um, I think that's all the things for right now. Um, I hope you have a great week. I hope as you are preparing for the Christmas celebration that um, you are able to uh, also remember uh, the importance of uh, Christmas and make time for um, being with family and reflecting on the gift of uh, Jesus and why he came at Christmas, or at least what we celebrate as Christmas. We can have debates all day long about, did he come in December or did he come in the spring? Um, we can have that debate all day long, uh, but we celebrated uh, his birth at this time. And so we can remember not just that he came, but why he came. Um, and so I hope you are able to uh, get some time to do that over this uh, next few weeks. Um, until we meet next time, I hope you have a fantastic week. <laughs>